on average, about 70% of the profits of an insurance company are administration expenses. So if they took their admin expenses to zero tomorrow, their profits would be 70% higher. So this is quite a cost-intensive industry. Hello to all our regular listeners, and if you found us for the first time, welcome. Matthew Grant here, partner at Instech London. Now, if you're wondering why I sound so upbeat, well, I had my first proper business lunch today, face-to-face with our good friend Ed Gaze from the Lloyd's Lab in a restaurant around the corner from Lloyd's itself. I managed to catch Ed as he caught up his breath between wrapping up Lloyd's Lab Cohort 6 and pruning down a long list of applicants for Cohort 7. On the subject of reality, a slightly different focus for today's podcast with my discussion with William Hawkins. William is an equity analyst for KBW, the investment bank, and I've known William for many years and I've really enjoyed talking to him about what is going on in the mainstream world of insurance. Now, innovation, insurtech, data, MGAs and such are very important to all of us. But as Williams reminds us, the scale of what is happening in these areas and the spending is dwarfed by what is happening in the large global insurers, also referred to, of course, as the incumbents and very important clients for anybody involved in insurtech or any kind of data and technology. Now, if you're wondering about how insurers make money, why they struggle with innovation, what the senior executives think about insurtech, and a whole lot more, then this one is definitely for you. Whether you're working in a startup and want to understand how to talk to your prospective clients, working in a technology company, or maybe even you yourself are employed by one of these major insurers, I know you're going to get some great insights from William. Finally, Instead London is back in the flesh. We're celebrating with our fourth summer party soon and then back running evening events in London in the Steel Yard on the 14th of September and the 11th of October. And I'll be popping over to California for our Instec on Tour event in November. Check out the website for details shortly. Now, back to William. William, really, really interested in our discussion today. We've talked to a lot of technology companies, we've talked to insurance organizations, but sometimes we've just got to stop and say what is happening in the world of insurance and how do insurance companies make their money. So delighted to have you along. You're Director of Research at KBW Europe. We're going to find out a little bit more about that in a moment. Uh, We also know each other because you run and kindly invited me to run a panel at your InsurTech event that you run for institutional investors. And I know you also have some insurers there. So excellent event now. And one of our earlier podcasts uh, in the last couple of weeks has got some of the speakers from that. But first of all, welcome. And I'd just love to hear a little bit more about KBW for those who don't know you. Hey, Matthew. Thanks for having me. It's great to um, uh, to speak with you again. And thanks to InsurTech London. KBW is an investment bank, so we do anything that any investment bank does, but we only do it in financial services. We're what's called a financial services boutique, but in terms of um, uh, the markets that we uh, cover, it's banks, insurance companies, and diversified financials. I run the equity research department uh, for Europe for KBW, so that's a team of about 20 analysts um, covering quoted banks insurers and diversified financials. Um, and, and personally, uh, my, my career has been built as uh, an equity analyst covering the quoted European insurance sector. Uh, so that's the companies as big as Allianz or as small as the Just Group um, and all the names in between. The first thing that's very important to say is that in this conversation, I'm giving you my personal views about industry trends. 
I operate in a highly regulated market, uh, providing investment advice to um, institutional investors only. And the purpose of this call is not to provide any investment advice. Um, so um, if it sounds like I'm doing that, I'm not. And please don't pay any attention to what sounds like any advice. Um, I think more importantly, though, to kind of come back to what I hope we're going to be talking about today. If you think about what an equity analyst does when he's deciding whether or not a share should be bought or sold, there's kind of two parts of the thought process. Some of it is what I'm assuming many of your listeners would normally associate an equity analyst with. We build our models and we do the next quarter's earnings and we think about what the dividend's going to be and all that stuff is very important. But there's a second element which is having a strategic view on where the industry is going. You know, it's one thing to say, well, I think the earnings the next quarter are going to be X. Uh, but, you know, what actually is the industry going to look like in 10 years time? And for many equity investors, that's really important because, of course, they want to make sure that the business is delivering a profit. But many of them are going to be investing in these businesses for many years. So they want to kind of take a view um, of, of where the industry um, and where companies are going to be positioned over the long term strategically. The reason you and I are talking is that one of KBW's house views is that financial technology is a major disruptive theme for all elements of the financial chain. Um, and, and I happen to think that, you know, insurtech, insurance technology is, is a big deal. That's kind of my background in a nutshell. And the other reason we're talking is we've known each other a long time and I've always enjoyed listening to your view on the industry. So delighted we could share a bit of that now. And also uh, your research is excellent and I'm you know, very grateful for you sharing that with you. I didn't realize you had 20 analysts behind you. And it's a great inspiration for us to be built up our own research team. Now, one of the things, as I've mentioned, I just we have really helped sort of baseline this obvious question that I just think it's useful to get out there. How do insurance companies fundamentally make money these days? You know, you've got two parts of the insurance market. You've got non-life and life. And so what a non-life insurance company does is it receives a premium, um, waits for an event to happen. And actually, we all keep our fingers crossed that the event doesn't happen because it's normally something ugly like a car crash or an earthquake. Um, and then if that event does happen, um, it pays the claim um, after the fact um, if it thinks it should be sort of paying that claim. So that's really what a non-life company does. It takes premiums and it pays, pays claims. And then somewhere in the middle, that non-life company also invests the premium in the hope that it can make an incremental return from its investment portfolio, which can either increase its profit or can subsidize the premium it's charging its policyholder. On the life side, again, let's not forget, you know, historically, you know, there's a reason why life and non-life are together in many insurance companies. It's because the core of life is kind of, it's also about risk underwriting. It's about mortality. Um, you know, you know, sadly, our bodies are kind of like cars and they all kind of break down. So, you know, just as you insure your car, you often want to insure your body in case it breaks down. You know, life insurance starts off conceptually very similar to non-life. But the reality is, again, because mortality is often about, you know, thinking about where your life is going over the long term, life insurance sits in the spectrum of asset and wealth management. So really, these days, an awful lot of life products are sold in parallel to kind of mutual funds or even bank accounts. You know, what am I going to do with my money to you know, protect my, my net worth and enhance my net worth over time? It's actually quite difficult to sort of say, well, when is it life and when is it not life? But I think, you know, for me, what normally defines a life product um, is that it's associated with a kind of long term investment return that is offering stability for the policyholder, normally with some time of long term performance guarantee. Um, an embedded guarantee, as we'd call it, and normally with guarantees that are associated with biometric or behavioral risk. What if you get sick? Um, what if you die? Uh, what if you get made unemployed? Okay, there's a lot of really useful information in there in what William is saying and there's a whole lot more to come. 
But if you're out on your bike, off for a run, or maybe even commuting these days, don't worry, you don't need to stop and take notes. We've already done that for you. Our edited and polished summaries are available. Listen through to the end to find out how you can find those still for free. Get them whilst you can. Okay, let's get back to William. So that's kind of the non-life and the life bit. I think there's two other important points to make, you know, which I'm assuming will be explored how this conversation evolves. You know, not so much how do they make money, but what's in that value equation. Distribution is still a huge cost element of the value chain for insurance. It's human and resource intensive to distribute insurance. And that's partly because you need smart advice. And historically, humans have still been the smartest thing around to provide the advice. And also, frankly, it's because you need to close a sale. There's that famous cliche that insurance is sold and not bought. You need to have someone uh, or something that really tips the um, potential policyholder to become an actual policyholder. And humans so far have still been the best to do that. And then lastly, you know, capital, um, historically capital is, is, is an intense resource for insurance companies. Um, the regulator needs to make sure that insurance companies have a big capital stack behind them to make sure that they can pay claims and guarantees and that, you know, that they're going to be around in the event of tail risk. And, you know, as we're all learning, you know, we, we learn this every time there's an earthquake, every time there's a pandemic, you know, funnily enough, tail risk happens almost every year, if not more frequently than that. Um, and I think that's quite an important point, depending on where our conversation goes. Um, you know, uh, when, when you think about financial technology, as well as the other elements of technology, that's a, another part of the value equation of insurance companies that is potentially ripe for disruption. Thank you very much. Well, you have certainly so far 100 percent of your audience has learned a lot from that. So uh, that was very helpful. And actually, as you're talking about the difference between life and non-life, it just occurred to me or, or you actually motor as one example versus life. The older we get, the more our insurance goes up as an individual. And normally the, the lower our insurance gets for our possessions, certainly when it comes to to driving. So and certainly in my case, it costs a lot more to insure my body than it does for my my car. Now, just you know, looking a little bit about what the reaction is of you know, what are known as incumbents uh, in the insurance world, but certainly the established companies and the emergence of new technology. Of course, innovation and new technology did not simply start in about 2015 with InsureTech. Mm. But you know, this, this sort of movement started off with claiming to be doing disruption. You know, people realized that was quite hard, partly regulation, partly it's really difficult to break into insurance because the scale problem, the distribution that you mentioned. Sometimes I wonder if it's gone too far the other way. It's now all about collaboration and maybe there's not enough disruption. But what is the view from the top of these organizations when they look at maybe technology more broadly, innovation more broadly, and then specifically the concept of InsureTech themselves? Are they, are they starting to take notice or is it still just rather sort of an annoyance that it doesn't really cross their uh, their desk very much? No, they're definitely starting to take notice. KBW certainly believes that InsureTech and FinTech are a big deal for the incumbent financial services sector and particularly for the incumbent insurers. Um, you know, it, it's almost fair to say that the kind of insurance that you buy today is pretty much the same as the kind of insurance your great, great, great grandparents would have bought 150 odd years ago. The issue that we're sort of seeing right now for why this is qualitatively different the value chain is evolving, but it is only evolving, changing very, very slowly. And the difficulty is that it's very hard if you're in a linear adaptation model to be 
adjusting quick enough and radically enough for the pace of existential change that's going on beneath you. Everything that I've just described to you in terms of the way insurers make money is being challenged, either sort of philosophically, you know, um, what does it actually mean to be an underwriter? Do you need to underwrite things? Um, or sort of practically, you know, how, how are, you, are you going to operate on the cloud or are you not? Every big insurance company gets it these days, and every big insurance company has a response program in place. But I think the strategic difficulty for insurers is kind of twofold. I mean, the first one is that they are locked in this linear adaptation model. Um, you know, but they need to grow their earnings. Remember, I told you part of my job is looking at the quarterly earnings and looking at what the next dividends are going to be. And insurers really need to pay their dividends for their investors at the moment. So they kind of have, you know, the sort of uh, shackles around them when they're sort of thinking strategically. You know, they want to think bold, but you can't take that boldness too far, um, which, again, makes you very vulnerable to long-term strategic change. So that's kind of point number one, the linear point. And I think the other challenge is that many of the things that traditional insurers view as their strengths um, actually potentially become their weaknesses. You know, branding is a massive deal for every insurance company. Of course it is. But if you want to talk later on, Matthew, about embedded finance, embedded insurance, you know, do those counterparties actually want your brand in the equation? You know, we've already talked about, you know, physical distribution of these products is still a massive part of the value chain. Does that work when risks and lives are being lived more online? That can be a big challenge. Actually, even down, you know, I'll take a pause off this, even down to the core point of your data, many insurance companies are immensely proud of the claims databases they spent 150 years building up. Is there the risk that an awful lot of those claims databases are redundant? You know, if you think about what the motor market is going to look like in the world of driverless cars relative to what it looks like in the past, you know, 100 years or so, there's a real danger that an awful lot of the legacy systems and data for these insurance companies is rapidly uh, becoming redundant. So my conclusion on this, you know, our conclusion is that InsurTech is a big deal. Our conclusion is that the incumbent companies get this and are responding to it. But the problem is if they're locked in a linear adaptation model and if what they perceive to be their strengths are actually potentially weaknesses, there's an awful lot of you know, headwinds there. And this is you know, it's a big execution challenge for the incumbent companies, which is not to say the insurtechs have it their own way in, in every way, as, as again, you may want to come back to. I really like this concept of linear adaption model, and I mean, it's very clarifying in terms of the, the challenges the companies have. And also, the other thing you mentioned in passing there, but it's just worth coming back to, is that point about dividend payment. I mean, if you're starting up the next lemonade, you, you're almost obliged not to provide dividend payments when you can't. You haven't got any earnings in there. So fundamentally, these insurance companies are, are as you say, they're stuck in a trap. And therefore, the next question is, okay, they're stuck in that trap. What do they do to get out of it? Because just setting up innovation hubs to sort of tweak things here or there or making some small investments in other insurtech startups isn't, is not going to make a fundamental difference and hasn't. And we've seen a number of companies that have tried to do that and failed. So you know, not, not asking you to name names, but are there examples of organizations or publicly known organizations where you have seen examples of how people are starting to do this and hints what could happen in the future? For the early part of the 2010s, right the way through to sort of, you know, 2017, 2018, there was quite a polarized response from the incumbent insurers to this whole kind of theme. Some of them took it really seriously. These guys got it that something was happening, but they weren't quite clear what was happening and what mattered. So there was an awful lot of kind of, you know, garages set up or incubators set up, venture capital things set up. 
not not quite sort of splashing the cash everywhere, but, you know, certainly trying out lots of different things to sort of try and figure out where things were going. I mean, to be fair, there was also a group of companies until reasonably recently who thought this whole thing was nonsense um, and that actually, you know, um, the world was never going to change. And yes, you know, we'd move from the telephone to the computer or something like that, but it was all kind of qualitative change and you could kind of ignore it and forget about it. I mean, I, I, I would say the, the world has now converged between those. No insurance company would say you can forget InsureTech. You know, every C-suite that I speak with gets that this is probably one of the biggest mega trends that they're contending with for the rest of their careers, you know, along with environmental issues. So all insurance companies, as far as I can see these days, now, now have a strategy. So it's more into the execution phase of how do we actually deliver on these big picture points? You know, how do we position ourselves for sensors? How do we position ourselves for big data? That kind of thing. I think what we've seen in the past two or three years, um, well, I think there's a couple of points to say on this. Um, I think that the um, most successful companies are operating a bit of a siloed approach between evolution of the existing business model and thinking disruptively. And I think, again, the challenge for the insurers is they do need to think about both. So what I mean about that, you know, the evolution of the business model is saying, look, we're not changing how we do motor insurance, but we can do everything online now rather than having a load of paper. That's a big change that we need to go through and we need to just focus on that. So we're not, we're not rethinking the model. We just need to do it more efficiently. That's very easy to say. And it's actually philosophically quite simple, but it's still a massive execution hassle. You know, when you think about how these companies are trying to kind of outsource a lot of their technology and the rest of it, it's, it's a big delivery ask. The, the, the second area that they're siloing in is then kind of thinking disruptively. Um, and, I, and I do think, you know, for me, it makes most sense that companies are trying to split this apart because it's very hard to say, you know, to your motor department, for example, think about how you're going to do all your claim settlement online. Oh, and by the way, also think about the fact that your product may be dead in five years time because no one's going to be buying cars anymore. Um, you know, it's very hard for any manager in one department to tick both of those boxes at the same time and execute on them. So I think the biggest insurance companies that I've seen have kind of siloed them themselves between, um, you know, adapting the existing model and preparing for the revolution. And then there's a few guys kind of at the top of the pyramid. And, and, and their job is actually really valuable because they're actually figuring out how you're allocating capital between those two buckets and how you're thinking about the timeline for change and the tipping point for change. Because a problem with an awful lot of this technology is that, you know, it feels like it's irrelevant until suddenly the world has changed. So you've got to be doing an awful lot of preparation for these things um, in the knowledge that you're not quite sure when they're going to go live, but you, you've got to be ready. So there's, there's guys at the t- top of the pyramid that are managing between the two silos. That's really interesting. There's a lot more to talk about on there, but I just want to jump in. There's a couple of things in there you mentioned. I wanted to make sure we understood them. First of all, you mentioned this point about saying that companies are more successful at silo. And I, it's actually very refreshing for you to say that because there's a lot of talk about everything needs to be joined up and connected. And I think what you're saying is the reality, which is that isn't always going to work. Uh, and you're better off to do it separately. And, and I know you can't name names, but, you know, we, many of us can think about who those companies are. The second one I wanted to ask you about, and this is more of a question. And, and one of the reasons I'm always a little bit cautious about using the word in short in a generic form is that it tends to mean one of at least two things, maybe more. It means MGAs that are using technology. And in some cases, they're actually new insurance companies with their own capital. But the point there is they are investing in technology and they, in many cases, are looking at new lines of business, new lines of distribution. Uh, it can also mean just the pure play technology companies that are going to sell their technology all over the, the marketplace and they make their money by selling technology. And then, of course, 
you know, we've got quite well-established companies who say we are InsureTech and they've been around for decades. So there's that element. As you, as you talk about what insurance companies are doing with InsureTech and their strategy and how they think about it, is there a focus around either the supporting the sort of MGA distribution model and finding new lines of business, or is the focus much more on finding efficiencies in the process and just using technology to create cost savings and make the business run more smoothly? I think the point that I was making was more an execution point, which is that when you're actually running a company trying to make change, you know, individual people still need to know what their job is. And you need to be very clear when you're allocating responsibilities, what people are doing and what they're not doing. And I think, again, the difficulty for technology is that some of the things that you need to do are potentially contradictory short term. And it's very hard to give one person contradictory roles. And I think the key point here, so then this slightly then comes on to your second point, Matthew. You know, when when I look at technology, there are some parts of the story at the moment that are just about doing the same thing more efficiently. And that's very much the job for you know existing employees in their existing business units. But then there are areas where you need to be thinking more radically. You know, you know, what are we doing about our distribution? What are we doing about you know the, the products that we're selling? Um, and, and to me, those areas are best evolved in in a, in a separate kind of silo. I don't know if silo is the right word, but you know, done by a, a separate team of people. And then around those two teams, you have another team which is, you know, understanding the timeline for change um, and, uh, you know, understanding at what point do we shift the resource from evolution to revolution and when do we sort of pull the trigger on downscaling one and upscaling the other. So that, that, that was the point I was making. And then my second question was around the distinction or the focus of the insurance companies on the, you know, the insure tech where it's a more of a, MGA enabled insure tech. And I'd also add into that is the focus around finding new types of insurance. You know, we all hear about the protection gap or how does that compare with the, the focus around just the efficiency play? As you look at the people you're talking to and you're, you're doing your own reports, is there a sort of a heavier focus on one versus the other? The point about MGAs or that kind of, you know, the, the tagline at the moment of the digital MGA, I think, um, uh, again, that, that's kind of look, it, the concept of an MGA is not new. All, all MGAs are are efficient niche distribution vehicles, um, and they've been around for a very long time. I, for me, the point about the the MGA part of the insure tech theme is that that can be the most efficient structure for um, uh, for discovering new lines of business or new routes to access of old lines of business. If you have a team of people that have a particular idea about a particular product or a particular route to market, you know, there are two things that they can do. They can try and set up a full stack insurance company. Um, and ultimately, that may be where many end up. Um, because, you know, there are benefits of being a full stack insurance company in terms of, you know, regulatory permission to do stuff and actually retaining more of the value chain and that kind of thing. So there are benefits to that. But the downside is that it's just really costly and really difficult. And actually, it may not be, again, what the individuals want to do. They have a particular kind of niche interest. The theme of the digital MGA 
some of its emergence has actually come from a few reinsurance companies that have actually been thinking quite creatively and sort of saying, well, look, we've been financing MGAs for 100, 150 years. So conceptually, an MGA is nothing complicated to us. Um, but these are other ways of finding new, you know, new, new, new revenue sources for us. And so you then end up um, you know, using actually quite an old form of financial technology to accelerate the introduction of new lines of business. You know, it's easier to distribute into cyber or, or trying new areas of playing with databases to understand your underwriting. But what you, the point I'm making is what you allow to happen in that is that the guys in the MGA can experiment with the new techie stuff. Whereas the guys behind the scenes and the reinsurer or whatever could be sorting out the capital and the claims handling um, in a way then that is just playing to the strengths of both sides of the equation. And then just on this, the investment in technology one, and I'm going to come back to a point you made in one of your research notes and for your event, you know, a leading European insurer, you know, their, their spend on technology alone was you know, meaningfully higher than I think all the investment in insurtech in, in the last five years, which is sort of comes to my point about that there is still a lot of money being spent in technology. Yeah. But, and again, it's sort of kind of really depends on what is it really the definition of insurtech. Is that, yeah, is that paying off the technical debt? You know, just fixing stuff that should have been fixed and just keeps getting broken and getting people that can code in Fortran and, you know, working on old machines. Or is that really being deployed against the new technology and, and really driving things forward? I think this is really important. And there's some simple numbers and ratios that you can think about that come back to my point of, you know, is the position of the incumbent insurance industry uh, a relative strength or weakness against this compounding disruption of technology? These are extremely round numbers, but they kind of work. On average, about 70 percent of the profits of an insurance company are administration expenses. So if they took their admin expenses to zero tomorrow, their profits would be 70% higher. So this is quite a cost-intensive industry. Most of the incumbent companies that I cover want to grow their earnings per share around about 5% a year. You know, some of them reach for the sky at eight. Some of them are recognizing that maybe it's going to be a bit lower. But, you know, it's, it's a mid-single-digit earnings growth industry. Now, so on, on the one hand, there's a massive technology efficiency opportunity. You, you know, you, you only need to be cutting your expenses in real terms you know, 6 7%, and you've already d- delivered all of your profit growth for a particular year. Within that 70%, roughly half of it is specifically the IT costs of the companies. So, you know, normally insurance companies are very um, human resource heavy and IT heavy. And so roughly speaking, within that 70%, you, you've got something like um, $200 billion of annual IT budget. Now, and that $200 billion is roughly half split between feeding the machine, just keeping everything alive, um, and roughly 50% investing in change. Um, now, I make that statement based on conversations with companies. I think we've got to be quite careful about that distinction because it is an extremely qualitative one. And um, when I say that half of it is about investing in change, that does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that it's all about investing in the fancy insurtech stuff. You know, a lot of that is just going to be updating for the Windows patches and that kind of thing, I think. So, you know, th- there is an element of investing for change, but arguably, I would argue a much bigger percentage of that is really just, you know, kind of keeping the whole sort of machine kind of ticking alive. Now, how are we going to look at that? You know, the InsurTech um, last year, I think it was a banner year, about seven billion dollars went directly into the InsurTech market. And that means since about 2012, about 26 billion dollars has been raised by InsurTechs specifically. So to me, it's interesting to compare those ratios. 
the difficulty is, you know, when you bring those two numbers together, on the one hand, insure tech is still small relative to the incumbent insurance industry, you know, slightly more than, you know, 10%. So actually what the incumbents are doing in their own business matters a lot more to all this stuff that's happening around the edge. But the key point again is that, you know, the insure tech number is compounding and now it's actually got quite big. I mean, you know, look at it the other way around. The biggest companies in the world that I can think of probably have tech budgets of like one or two billion dollars. Actually, therefore, relative to any individual company, InsureTech is now 10 times bigger than any individual company. The difficulty for the insurance industry is that it is massively levered to its technology spend. And all these little minnows are changing where you need to be making your technology spend. So getting your decisions right or risking getting your decisions wrong has a huge impact on where your profits are going. And, and the last thought on that, Matthew, um, is just to sort of say, look, again, the difficulty for the insurers, these big incumbents, they need to be growing their profits. So the incentive every year is actually to cut their technology spend because that's the easiest way to satisfy your shareholders near term and get your profits up. Actually, that can be a disastrous thing to do long term because what you really need to be doing is investing in changing your technology so your business is healthy for the long term. And so that's a real dilemma for any top executives of an incumbent insurer. But also what has been interesting is seeing, you know, and one company we know well started off looking at what kind of data could it find you know, on the web to help understand properties and commercial risks. But actually they've done a pivot and now they're getting a lot of success sorting out some of the, I'm not going to say simpler, but more important problems for the insurance company, which is they've got a bunch of policies coming in, they need a way to efficiently figure out which ones they're going to go and look into more detail underwrite and be able just to just to turn down the ones they don't want to. And the clever thing there is, you know, this, this organization is still using smart AI to go and do the analysis. They're just focusing on something that is is very much an operational efficiency as opposed to an enhancement to pricing or risk selection. So I think we're going to see more and more of that and the successful ones are going to pivot. Uh, and on that theme, you mentioned this in passing earlier on, embedded insurance. Timing's good. We're just doing, uh, Robin's just handed in his, his report on embedded insurance. We're doing an event coming up in, in a couple of weeks when we're recording this. What is the view from insurers about embedded insurance? You mentioned brand earlier on. You know, arguably, a lot of the distributors of insurance have got much stronger and more effective brands than insurers. So you know, is that the direction of travel? Should insurance just sit in the background and be the capital providers and make sure the technology can hook up to the big brand names? Do insurers have a role as a standalone entity in offering, uh, in offering their products? If I may be slightly controversial, I, I think there are a few insurance companies that probably have really valuable brands. But I think we'd, I think insurance companies would all be surprised by how few there are that actually have real value in the brand. There's an awful lot of insurance companies where when you go to the counterparty and say, hey, this is us, to be honest, the response is, so what? Hence the rise of the, uh, the aggregators, particularly in you know, the comparison sites in the UK, where most people buying motor insurance will just go and buy it through a comparison site. Now, that, there's a whole separate discussion there about you know, the, the move away from price walking and how that's going to change. But yeah, ultimately, people are looking at the buying decision, not really the experience of the claims process, because they just generally don't know. But we've covered a lot in there. Just looking to the future then, and you mentioned 10-year horizon. What do you think is going to be, if not dominant, at least just the norm for insurers related to technology that is still evolving today? I've kind of got a Venn diagram of thinking about the, uh, you know, the framework for how InsureTech is changing the world of insurance. And, and for me, there are kind of three buckets to think about. There's the bucket of risk management and the risk management is kind of 
the front end, the product kind of area. And then you've got the business management bit, which is kind of the back end sort of processes bit. And then overlapping that, you've got customer engagement, which is mostly about service and it covers all end of front and back end, you know, selling the product and then managing the product after it's been sold. When you're thinking about what InsureTech is doing thematically, those are three useful buckets to position companies into. Is this about risk management? Is it about business management? Is it about customer engagement? I mean, in terms of the other sort of themes, insurance is an enabler to the real economy and to real society. So actually, the question is, how is the real economy and real society changing? And what does that mean for insurers? The elephant in the room that we all know about is changes to transport and logistics. You know, 40 percent of your average non-life company's premiums are in motor. The motor market is not going to look like it does today in 15 years time. So that's got to be a game changer for the industry. And whilst many companies don't make a lot of profit off motor, it's a massive kind of scale kind of business that keeps kind of their volumes uh, very healthy. You've asked me about embedded finance. I think that's probably a big deal. I think sensors, you know, I think we're probably going through a bit of a trough at the moment in terms of the view of, you know, how, how they're actually changing the world of insurance and insure tech. But I think, you know, a sensor covered world, you know, be it a sensor in a factory, on a cha- train, in your car or just the watch that you're wearing, the way that is changing the real time data understanding of risk, who owns that data and who can process that data. I, I, I think sensor technology is still going to be a game changer for, for all life and non-life insurers. I'm really tempted to jump into those, but uh, I think we could spend a whole 45 minutes talking about sensors alone. And maybe we come back and uh, do that for a repeat or a second round. But that was really helpful, William. For anybody that wants to get access to what you're doing at KBW, I know you tend to be limited on who gets this. If somebody's in an insurance organization and you're already doing research for them, uh, that's the first question. Can they get access to some of the research information you're putting out? Well, let me do a plug for you in that sense, Matthew. Again, I I am highly regulated and I can't just be distributing my research to anybody who asks. Um, But on the other hand, my number one priority is is, is to be networking with people because I think there are so many issues that are going on here. And I think KPW knows a lot of the questions. We don't know a lot of the answers. So so my suggestion, just to be quite practical on this, is, um, you know, if people come to, to you or go through Interstate London, you know, put us in touch and I'd be delighted to, you know, start um, an, an informal conversation. Well, that's very kind. Watch out because we have, uh, I think, thousands <laughs> of listeners these days. You might find you're quite busy hitting uh, reply, you know, attach. But uh, that's a very generous offer for you. Thank you very much. It's just in the last couple of minutes, anything we haven't covered that you, you think is important on this topic? No, as you say, I think, you know, I mean, I think the biggest challenge for everybody is that there is so much changing at once. And so trying to figure out what is material and when it's material is actually quite hard. Um, and that's why, you know, I often say to you, I think this is so fascinating and exciting to watch. Uh, but I really have sympathy, um, you know, uh, for, for, for executives that are trying to implement these changes because, you know, it is, you know, a- execution is everything. And the execution risk and challenge shouldn't be underestimated. Well, William, thank you very much for spending time. I know how much work it is preparing research notes, even if you've got a team of 20 people working with you. So I really appreciate you taking the time out to share your insights with us. I know that's going to be very helpful for a lot of people. I certainly learned an awful lot in there. So uh, enjoy the rest of your day and thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Matthew.
Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Now, as usual, not to worry if you didn't get all of that first time round. We write it up for you so you don't have to go and write it yourself. Head over to www.instec.london to read the notes. And if you're collecting CPD points for your Chartered Insurance Institute or whatever other professional qualifications you may be after, don't forget to register for those too. And thank you to all of you for the feedback and comments on LinkedIn and via email. And of course, if you want to find out more about becoming a member or corporate member of Instec London, please do contact us. You can get hold of myself, Matthew Grant, or Robin Mertens, or indeed any of the team on LinkedIn, or email us at hello at Instec London. Look forward to speaking to you again soon and maybe even seeing you face to face. Mm -hmm.